Hello, this is Terry Vandermark, also known as Thaddeus Quasar, um, offering uh, my next installment, Volume 2, of um, the uh, Life Before the Alien Magic series, um, part two of the, the story titled um, The Varied Tongues of God. Um, before I get started, I'd like to uh, thank those two people who listen to my podcast, presumably two people at work. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, let me get a shout out to uh, Jen and Ailey, uh, who uh, showed me how to get this on uh, uh, with Anchor. Anchor is awesome. It's like really easy to use. So uh, really easy. I mean, I'm like computer illiterate. So I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Um, and also... Um, go to their podcast, um, Ailey's and uh, Jennifer's podcast, um, titled Michigan and Other Mayhem. You'll like it. All right, let's get started. Um, the Varied Tongues of God, Chapter 2. The people assembled in the village of Gilded Eyepiece were in an uproar. The chief elder Gavin was banging his gavel on the wooden platform, plat podium and demanding order. He struck with such force that the instrument broke in two. The arbiter was armed with a toothless tool. There had not once been such calamity. The only thing to steer the passions of the people usually came from without the force, not from within. No order was forthcoming. Fist fights had broken out among all the villagers who had come together, these people representing six villages of the Northwood. Come now barked Chief Officer Gladfill. We must not descend like animals, or worse, like goblins, into nonsensical violence. This can only be resolved without, with reason. Golden Bridle is beyond reproach. Beyond reproach, I must reiterate. You, Officer Beale, from the village of Bloody Dagger, what is this you have to say? Officer Beale had a sinister grin on his face. He wove his way among the frozen and mystified members within the chamber. His command of the situation forced most of the rabble to desist. He appeared like a spinning coin. Some refused to believe he existed, that he was some kind of manifestation. Others figured him to be a god, taking up space in two dimensions and not one. Go on, pressed the elder Gavin, careful not to look directly on the officer's form. Make your accusation. Officer Beale approached the end of the stage, the vent beneath the podium blowing hot air. He turned to face the red-faced, spitting crowd, then waved his arms emphatically. You have been deceived, deceived by the likes of Golden Bridal. Also, the villages might enjoy their elevated status among you. What if I told you, the people of Gilded Eyepiece, that a talisman that the mayor of Golden Bridal awarded your village... For your own honor and protection, that that gift he awarded you with, that he awarded you with, represents a lie. This talisman, this talisman is a tr in truth a lie? Chief Elder Gavin quickly intervened. He saw the anger and hate in the villagers' faces. Those emotions had to be diffused. He pointed out the danger to Officer Beale. You're treading on thin ice here, Officer Beale. Silently but forcefully, he circumvented the stage and mounted the stairs. The medals on his jacket jostled, catching the fluorescent light. 
Elder Gavin clutched Beale's forearm. Some of these people respect the people of Golden Bridle. They are friends among them. You may not survive the night. Officer Beale said nothing. With a vibrant flare, he swept away his cloak. Tucked beneath his leather holster was a frilly delicate thing. He slammed it on the podium. What's that there? queried the villagers from outside um, Gilded Eyepiece. The people within the chamber crowded the stage and skulked hesitantly up the stairs, careful to hang back, and drifted toward the podium. I will tell you what that is, clamored one man, bespectacled, squeaking from behind the curtain. The people in the chamber followed as a young bald man crossed the stage and sidled up to the podium and the two officials. The young man elbowed his way between the two. He lifted up the blood-stained tunic and presented it for all to see and waved it over his head. Elder Gavin reached for it, but Panto selfishly snatched it back. The villagers gasped at the sight of it. This is said to be a banner, not just any banner. The banner held high, the banner presented by the righteous, by the angelic host, said to be in service to God. Despite the professor's falsetto voice, he captivated the audience. It is said to have been carried away by the victors, those who defeated Michael and the Lord's own outside the walls of heaven. Now it is said to be a promise that the upright are known to God and that they will be sought out and delivered someday, soon. The people marveled. The blood is of God himself, spilt defending the faithful. But Officer Beale grimaced. Do you think this represents God, that the blood on the, on the garment is his own blood, that your faith in him will be rewarded? This gentleman here, this is Panto, conveyed Officer Beale, referring to the bespectacled man, a scholar from the university. Tell us, Panto. Reveal to us the lie that this represents. Panto draped the bloody tunic atop the podium, smoothing the fabric out tenderly with his hands, allowing the blood-stained garment to be fully revealed, and indicated, I have my own super suspicions as to whether this served as the flag of the armies of God. Most clothing that comes from heaven is durable, tightly woven threads of silver, yet as soft and comfortable as silk. I have compared it with the existing material we have garnered, said to be from heaven. This material here is coarse and ugly. Its crude and common manufacture can be traced to any one of a half dozen textile mills in the city of Boyd. Instead of unique to heaven, the craft of this cloth is common to the Bay Area. Panto swept his hand across the length of the garment. His nimble fingers pinched the crusted fabric. The blood, it is said that this is the blood of God. Those who cherish this cloth believe that to be the case. I must admit, I was enthusiastic when I heard there was a sample of God's blood to be tested. What would I find, I wondered, blood with no ties whatsoever to the people of the Abyssin? Maybe something else, maybe blood similar to the different people's uh, God it is said to have created. What did you find, necessitated an outspoken lad? Tell us what you, the nature of God is. There was a general murmur throughout the chamber. It was clear why this stained tunic was hidden, even among the different elders representing the various villages, who themselves were ignorant which village held the prize. Who was it within Gilded Eyepiece 
had committed the criminal offense by surrounding the bloody tunic for study at the university. An elder named Crendor spun separate from the frothy maelstrom that were he troubled that were the troubled villagers in the chamber. I don't think we should go down this path. The knowledge of what that blood reveals could cripple God. It could disarm him. It could reduce God to what we make him out to be. Worse, it could take away from us, from the people who aspire to be a part of him, and the reward he has to offer. Immediately there was an uproar among the villagers within the chamber. People were slugged, furniture was thrown. The effort was made to climb upon the stage and seize the bloody shirt. But Elder Gavin summoned the guard, who moved like rotating gears, as rambunctious men threw chairs and books and inkwells at them. They proceeded in unison down the stairs, creaking from the weight, advancing like the tide. Their silence and their stodgy presence made many of the villagers fear they were not dealing with humans. Elder Gavin snatched up the bloody tunic. He and Officer Beale and Panto retreated behind the expanding wall of soldiers. Squealing, Panto seized the tunic and waved the stained garment in the air. Do you know what I found? Do you know the nature of the blood I uncovered? There was an abrupt silence in the chamber. Do tell us, croaked one man, it, as if his final plea on his deathbed. Do tell us, for we must hear the truth. The scholar dropped down at the base of the stage and wedged himself between the curtain of burly soldiers. The truth is, on this piece of clothing, the blood it belongs neither to God nor to man. The blood is that of a pig. You, the people of Gilded Eyepiece, the receiver of the, this talisman, you have been played for a fool. You have been deceived. All the people of the Northwood have been deceived. Men stormed the stage. There were no longer guards versus villagers. There were now all villagers, intent on finding the source of the lie and killing it. There was no containing it now. Soldiers found themselves removing their helmets and cracking open their shells. The objective of the guard defending the three was lost. Everyone found themselves arming themselves with anything they could find. We have been lied to by the people of Golden Bridal. They know the penalty of circulating lies. They created the penalty. The village of Golden Bridal must be destroyed. The audacity of the liar must be met with a the blade. There is no other reasonable end. The scholar rushed up the stairs. Panto and Gavin and Beale backed away, disappearing behind the heavy curtain. They exited through a door to the alley. The three climbed over one another into a waiting carriage. Gavin argued, you should not have disclosed your findings. Panto grunted, I refuse to be a slave of a false god. I spoke the truth. Maybe lies are okay for the people of the Northwood, and when it must not be okay for those recruiting my findings. Beale glared at Gavin. Do you think that Gilded Eyepiece is the only village Golden Bridal has lied to? Its secrets reclaimed, newly valued, given to others. Panto smiled proudly as he sat back in the cushioned couch as the carriage carrying the three men sped away. Officer Beale and Scholar Panto shared a look. The officer took Panto's hand and squeezed it. Golden Bridal was the most powerful village in the Northwood, as powerful and respected as ten or twelve of the other villages in the forest combined, much more powerful than the officer's village of Bloody Dagger. No, Golden Bridal must be destroyed and there must be a new home for the displaced scrolls. 
then the balance of power will be shifted from the gifted, powerful persons that occupied Golden Bridle to the more modest villages and unskilled persons throughout the forest, together with those at the university dedicated to advance the knowledge and happiness of the others beyond the forest throughout the Abyssin. As for the existence of God, who knew? What was better, that God had been killed, or that, even if God did exist, everyone chose not to believe in him? Either way, the death of God benefited both the university and the village of Bloody Dagger. Mayor Torres, mayor of the village of Golden Bridal, was walking alone along a sun-dappled, fragrant, buzzing road between his village of Golden Bridal and the village of Folded Map for an urgent meeting of the Council of the Eight. The short, heavy-set, graying mayor came to an abrupt stop. Someone, he must he was most convinced, was following him. The crackling vegetation spooked Mayor Taurus. Whom had the wood delivered unto the mayor? The forest never spoke to the mayor directly, just channeled the winds through the laden branches. The trees were chatty. They were never succinct. They lured him seductively off the road to investigate, but he could not be detained. Reason and sensibility and He'd master the hotheads that now governed many of the villages throughout the north wood. Suddenly, two boys stepped from out of the forest and onto the road. They were curious-looking figures. A dusty white paste was smeared across their thin, th their thin frames. Black grease paint covered their, uh, over their eyelids. "'What's this about?' asked the mayor, careful to catch each one's eye. Each villager deserved that cagey, dangerous, respectful action." Behind the mayor stepped another boy, late teens or early twenties, similarly outfitted as the other two boys. He was leading a horse by the reins. The clop of his shoes sounded on the road's pavement. The young adult was clutching a ponytail of some young woman's hair. The boy did not say as much, but it was obvious he sought forgiveness. But Mayor Torres was not offered was not once offered any kind of forgiveness. He never switched one personal scroll with another, that would establish a dangerous precedent. I know who you are, the mayor remarked, still looking for an acknowledging eye, but being denied it. You being to, uh, you belong to the village of Pissfield Canteen. A curious lot, you are. The weakest of the villages of the Northwood by far. The dregs of society. The adult male said nothing. He only brought the horse he escorted casually over to where Mayor Torres stood. Do you want me to climb up? asked the mayor. The three painted males said nothing. They only stood adjacent to the mayor, though they did not bestow upon him any of the niceties of mayor, especially one as revered as Mayor Torres was accustomed to receiving. The short, chubby mayor dug his feet, foot into a stirrup and climbed onto the back of the animal. Don't think I'm ignorant of the crude, ugly actions perpetrated by the people that call your village home. Crimes, shady dealings, your ilk have killed one mayor from the village of Lake Candle. Is that not true? You have stolen treasures, and you have purloined not a few valuable secrets. I suppose the one question that must be asked is, why does your village remain standing? The forest was saying something. The mayor knew it was pertinent, but Mayor Torres 
had turned a deaf ear to the groaning, creaking trees for centuries. Mayor Taurus grimaced. Should he kill this boy? Should he bring the vociferous trees back into the mix? The tall, lean youth said nothing, only took the horse by the reins and led the mayor down the road in the direction of Folded Map, the way he had been heading. I don't know whose back pocket the three of you are in, quipped the mayor, adjusting himself on the uncomfortable leather saddle. I was on my way to a very important meeting, the Council of the Eight. I don't expect you to care about that, though I do not doubt that one of those seven hired you to come here to take me. I'll find out who it is soon enough. Something suddenly jarred Meritorus into silence. The sunlight caught the horse's gear. The horse was chomping on a golden bridle. The dwarven army stood just west of the north wood. Apoc, king of the dwarves in the kingdom of Kwakiutl, tugged at his braided hair, draped over his shoulder. He was sitting among perfumed singers, fine-tuning the king's legacy. He glowered at King Gadget, leader of the Dwarven Confederation Army. The people of the Northwood have used their knowledge to blackmail the leadership of the dwarves. And now you are telling me that you will, here and now, desert our cause? King Gadget nodded solemnly. Do you think you are the first dwarf lord to consider storming the villages of the defenders? Every generation or so, the dwarves, angry of the place they are in in the Amazine, want to storm the forest. King Gadget nodded solemnly. Do you think you are the first dwarf lord to consider storming the villages of the defenders? Every generation or so, the dwarves, angry of the place they are in in the Apocene, want to storm the forest, and every time we dwarves are turned back. And do you know how that is? Each army comes back half its strength. Half its strength. How is that possible? We dwarves are most capable as warriors, are we not? We can defeat an army of 100,000 strong of the most fearsome beasts, and yet not in one day's time, each proud dwarven army that has engaged the defenders is broken, is humbled, it is turned back. Apoc absently twirled the braid around in his forefinger. I'm determined to make this result different. Do you want to be part of the people of the future, the dwarven future, the future of courage and of possibilities? Or do you want to be among those cowardly dwarves whom we will hunt down in our gilded age to make an example of and imprison, if not slaughter? King Gadget hunted for his curious reflection in his silver helmet. He shirked all searching eyes. The Confederation dwarves thought him beyond reproach. Had they been proven wrong? Among every dwarf, 
who has uncovered the secret golden bridle holds every has uncovered the secret golden bridle holds has died and i am assured not once but on several occasions that is by his own hand sorry but have preferred to preserve the hope of the dwarven people king gadget ahead of the army of the dwarven confederation turned to leave the forest and returned for home cowards shouted some you stab us now and in the back snarled others with a wave of the hand king apoc stepped back with a shout the dwarves of quachutal overwhelmed the confederation troops and descended upon king gadget there was sobbing and cries of agony the cruel dwarves loyal to apoc were determined to let gadget live as long as possible to suffer exponentially Apoch's dwarves wrenched joints loose, they crushed bone, they cut open his belly and pulled free his entrails. King Apoch himself knelt beside the dying King Gadget. He clutched the king's beard, and both peered intently at one another. There is no fear in you, no despair. Curious. He worked his hand up into King Gadget's heaving chest. He found his counterpart's trembling heart. As his life waned, King Apoch seized the heart, yanked it free, then took a bite out of it. He then stood up and revealed his trophy to the congregated dwarves. Without a word, most knelt reverently, muttering oaths of renewed loyalty. A few among them swooned and fell to the ground. The remaining, their knees quaking, ran for the woods. King Apoch waved a flippant hand. Let them go. How many are there? Two score, if not a little more? This is our chance. There is an obvious weakness. The villages are fighting among themselves. If Golden Bridal is to be crushed, it must be now. A new world, a world of dwarven hegemony, will be our victor's legacy. And with that said, King Apoch took his horn in his blood-stained hands and blew into it. The voice caused the entire wood to shake. The dwarves climbed to their feet. They gave out a shout. They beat their swords against their shields. They left the goriness that were the remains of King Gadget for the crows to eat, and made their way in a tight formation into the north wood, among the ancient trees for the village of Golden Bridal. The trees offered as much resistance as they could, but, he, but King Apoch and the dwarves could not be refused. That is the end of episode two of um, the varied tongues of God. Um, tell me how what you what you think. Um, you can uh, email me at icoanoclast three four at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks. Bye. Hello, this is uh, Terry Vanmark, a.k.a. Thaddeus Quasar, recording the third uh, installment of my uh, novella titled The Varied uh, Tongues of God, um, a prequel to the um, novels, a um, couple of novels I have on available on uh, Amazon Kindle of the... Um, uh, of uh, the alien magic or dream sphere shards that uh, the um, is referred to in uh, life uh, before the the alien magic. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Jen and Ailey. Um, 
listen to their uh, podcast when you get a chance of Michigan and Another Mayhem. It's very entertaining, very funny. Um, and also I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Anchor. Um, everyone who creates a podcast, doesn't know what they're doing, should consider uh, using Anchor. It's very easy to do and it's free. Um, six easy steps and you could be recording. So uh, thanks again for listening and here uh, begins um, episode three. Celeste was climbing the upright mountain face, pulling at interwoven nets of knotted roots with her lover, Zohar, falling close behind. The girl was spending the quiet time exploring the relationship she had with the boy, trying to tell herself she could be with him and be happy, but she had her doubts. Zohar was silent. Was he thinking about their future? Despite the need to avenge, she need not have a role in the forest. Celeste would not look Zohar in the eye. Zohar, you see, for whatever reason, I was chosen for something special. I may have run away from Golden Bridal. I may have spent my youth in the errant compass. No matter. I think my life has a purpose. One that transcends any life I could live, like I could lead in a village in the North Wood. What purpose might that be, pray tell? My first night in the errant compass, I was met by the One Mother. The woman who I came to appreciate as mother. Mother took me in. She raised me as her daughter. She told me she had been calling out to me for years. And I heard her. I was just too young to appreciate it. Celeste froze on the slope. She reached and desperately grappled Zohar's forearm. Do you know, I have not touched solid food for going on five years now. Water sustains me. I don't know how the how or the why, but it does. I drink the water, which comes from one of three sources, one just outside Aaron Compass. It was Mother who introduced the nectar to me. What do you suppose Mother was grooming me for? She selfishly maintained, I believe I'm to be part of that special life. So horror would not hazard a guess. The two fell silent and climbed their way for several arduous minutes. Finally, Celeste confessed to her husband. Mother said something to me. Something that makes no sense. I'm afraid it's key to why she was taken. She told me, spring water arises in thirsty soil. Dead hands alone anoint with oil. Song resurrects the white feathered bird. The chains are broken with a single word. What do you suppose it all means? Now she is gone, my village is dead. Maybe had I said yes and committed to what she wanted of me, I'm thinking life would have gone on as normal. The villages in the Northwood would live for centuries. My own lifespan would go go on for, what, a hundred years or more? But I refused. I refused, and grief has come to the villages of the wood. That's why we gotta find her, to give me a second chance, to make things right. Zohar said nothing. He seemed to sense that his life was right, his wife was right, that life in the Northwood was imperiled, that secrets and livelihoods were at risk. Finding... The one mother was the only conceivable way of shielding the Northwood from what threatened it. Finding the one mother and returning her to her place of imminence in the Northwood would allow Celeste and him to lead a happy life, the married life, outside the forest. Peck Merrill and Mira, the parents of Zohar, had arrived at what remained of Errant Compass. Peck Merle 
was tracing affectionately with his finger the carving in the elm tree of Zohar and Celeste. Was Zohar to be heartbroken, as was Peck Merrill? He was not happy, being married to Mera. He should have taken Chenchu's advice, marry outside the Northwood. Certainly never raised children here. We must find our son, remarked Mera. He may know who did this. If that's the case, then his life is in jeopardy. Peck Merrill observed the, the print in the mud of one's clubfoot. I may know the child that survived this conflagration, the child with the clubfoot. It must be Celeste. What about the one mother? asked Mira. Do you think the one mother's life has been taken? Peck Merrill's voice cracked. There's a fire. Do you see? To the south, the whole night sky is aflame. There is something you must. You are not telling me. Do you know why it burns? Peck Merrill winced. Why should I know? Mira glowered at the man. What do you mean? What do you want me to take away from these ashes? Something about Celeste? About Zohar? Was this the time to tell her he was leaving Golden Bridal, leaving the wood? Was this the time to tell her he intended to kill Zohar? Peck Merrill ventured to take his wife's hand. We must head south to investigate. We should know the source of this fire and its purpose. That's that's the two kids' destination. That's for that's their future. Merrill was memorized by the conflagration. Fires in the north would always portend bad things. That may be the future of the entire world. The Council of the Eight had been convened in the village of the of Bloody Dagger. Eight villages of the Northwood were represented here. All had been a part of the council from the very beginning, from the dawn of time itself. Seeing the subtle rule of the elves, the rise and fall of the dwarves, the cruel tyranny of men, the council were spectators to wars, then the causes of them. We wait for Mayor Taurus, stated Mayor Gordas, a black man with silver bolts streaking beneath his eyes, a village unlit candle. How much longer must we wait, inquired Mayor Lal, with curly long red hair. It is clear, affirmed Mayor Roger of Foxtoll, his hair tied up in knots all over his scalp, the tips of vibrant blue, that Mayor Taurus does not respect our council, otherwise he would be here. He would move night and day to be here. Mayor Taurus, Mayor Tendril of the village, bundle of thorns with roving, darting cat eyes, argued, most certainly would be here. Nothing can stay him. He took command back when the first eight villages were founded, back when men were just finding their way, separate from doors and from elves and from gods. It was Mayor Taurus's efforts that galvanized and reinforced the the rule and the place of the villagers of the Northwood. If not for him and for all of us here working together, there would not be the promise of life in the Abyssine. Have we once been in a position to replace or overrule that, overrule him? He is too powerful, too gifted to be slain, quarreled Mayor Grency. He has vanished, which he might himself be responsible for, or he may be, have been abducted. The council erupted into chaos. Mayor Quitch, a village book removed last chapter, was the most outspoken. He swore, not once in our history, has one white mayor been abducted from among the eight. I know how to resolve this, answered Mayor Valk. 
His red hair was fashioned like a roiling flame. With one hand he produced a dagger, with blood crusted on the blade and worked into the handle. He slammed it onto the table's surface. The other six mares sat looking, stupefied. Mayor Tendrils said softly, Are you threatening us with that? Put it away. His cat eyes conveyed his anger. Mayor Valk engaged the gaze of Mayor Tendril for the longest time. Finally, he pocketed the knife. Mayor Lal spoke. The other villages, the villages like gilded eyepiece and bloody dagger and worn coin, want representation here. What's more, they want a say in what scrolls are given to whom. Mayor Quitch steepled his fingers in thought. But what about this abduction of Mayor Taurus? We seven cannot sit idly by and allow for such an egregious and disrespectful crime against the elders that sit on this council. Mayor Grency shook his head. We can do nothing while Mayor Taurus is not among our number. Whoever has him must know that. Mayor Gordas was beside himself. It is the hope, perhaps of the village of Gilded Eyepiece, perhaps of many more, that Golden Bridal without the strength and leadership of her leader, can be defeated by these upstarts. Is that the lesson you want Gilded Eyepiece and the other younger villages to take away from this? queried Mayor Valk. That we will do nothing as long as one of our own mayors be, uh, has been abducted? Mayor Roger, twisting his knotted blue hair, stated, Mayor Taurus alone decided to destroy Errant Compass. He alone burned the village to the ground. He alone killed the one mother. And what is this I have heard from Chief Officer Gladfill? He alone submitted the lie that is the bloody tunic to the village of Gilded Eyepiece. The other mayor said nothing. What Roger had said set a dangerous precedent. Mayor Grency picked up where Mayor Roger left off. The younger villages will not be happy with Golden Bridal. They will not be satisfied until Golden Bridal is annihilated. Mayor Quitch posed the one question each one of them was fearing. Golden Bridal will need allies. Who among the seven villages represented here will come to her aid? A long agonizing silence followed. Not one man raised his hand. So be it, answered Mayor Quitch. Mayor Tendrils asked what will be the fate of Mayor Taurus. His cat eyes would look no one in the eye. Again, no one answered. Finally, Mary Roger, tugging at his knot of blue hair, said, Perhaps it's best for all involved that Mayor Taurus never rematerializes. The seven then chose how they would respond to the younger hostile mayors and elders and counselors once they were recruited to enter the war against Golden Bridal. Everyone on the council understood that, should they be reproached by one of the warring villages, each would, affect, or would offer assistance or hindrance or ambivalence for payment of certain scrolls. Celeste and Sohar painstakingly approached the odd village of the, on the, at the tree line of Mount Macnum, named Hedna Satchel. They sat atop a craggy peak, thick ancient trees standing defiantly, clinging precariously. What do you suppose these people want with the one mother? inquired Sohar. Who knows? Perhaps they intend to shield her. Whoever wiped out Errant Compass did so, most likely, to get rid of her. I'm determined to find out for myself. And, with that said, the teenage girl crawled over the toothy, craggy lip of stone 
and using the upright, sturdy trees to assist her, descended the steep embankment. Celeste immediately lost her footing. She tumbled down several dozen feet, landing violently behind an outcropping of rock. Celeste cowered as a young man with a freckled face and tousled black hair approached where she ended up. Hello, there's no need to fear. Come out of there. What should she do, she wondered. Stand up, reveal herself to him, and put her trust in God, apparently. If she did so, she risked never finding out the fate of her mother. Suddenly, the bell in the center of the village rang. The clanging resounded off the embracing snow-capped mountains. The young man responded, then looked back. Come on out. It's very nearly mealtime. You would not want to miss out on the feast, would you? There was no mistaking the violence in him. It was apparent in his deliberate gait, however masked. The man stopped. He craned his head. Then he continued onward. Come on, I know you've come for the meal, like I did. Eight years ago now. I was almost late that time. Won't make that mistake again. The tousled black-haired boy turned and began to sprint away toward the heart of the village. Don't be fooled. Three are turned away every time, and we have guests, so make a move, will ya? And with that said, the freckled-faced, tousled black-haired boy ran between two houses and disappeared. Celeste did not know what to do. She was emboldened by the fact that the boy did not alert others to her presence. She was also certain that, without everyone, with everyone preoccupied with the upcoming meal, she would not attract any undue attention to herself. The houses were huddled together, the red tile roofs apparently linked together, sheltering them all like a gathering of turtles. Was there a threat from above, she wondered? Maybe trolls from the mountain apron throwing down immense rocks? Maybe the cluster roofs were protecting something else. The teen stood up, nursing a wounded knee. She made her way past the outcropping and through the thick, thorny, unyielding foliage into the village. Where where was she? Supposed to find the one mother, she wondered. She stealthily approached a window to each and every house, peering inside. On she progressed, circling the village of Head in the Satchel, making her way deeper and deeper into the interior. She heard the more she entered the village of the village, the bustle and cheer of those preparing for the upcoming celebrated feast. Just her luck. Her mother must be in the house nearest the meal. Celeste peeked around the corner to one distinguished whitewashed house. She had arrived at the village square. Most of the villagers apparently had come. Many had already chained their much-coveted seats, claimed their much-coveted seats. Others were standing, drinking ale and talking lively and slapping one another on the back. She counted. From what Celeste could see, there were as many as twelve seats available, twelve seats for some distinguished guests. The teen girl wondered who these guests might be. Suddenly, the spring to a porch door creaked, and the obvious mayor of village head in a satchel accompanied the apparent guests through the door and to the table. Celeste watched as eight elves exited the house, following the mayor. They gathered for the feast. The table were rattling like bones, the cloth flapping vigorously in the wind. The mayor assured the elves, yes, the one mayor, once consumed, will bestow upon us her special powers. 
We have invited you, brothers, we have included you in this special moment to advance a unique relationship between you and the peoples of our village. Only you know the secret to our power. Only you, my brother else, do we trust with this incredible knowledge. What was this Celeste was hearing? Did the villagers intend to feed upon the One Mother? Did they believe that by consuming her flesh, they would possess certain special powers? Celeste had heard enough. She knew where the One Mother was being held. She backed away from the corner of the mayor's house. She looked through a screen window. Sure enough, there was the One Mother, resting comfortably on a divan. Did she know the gruesome fate she faced? She must have known. Celeste worked fast. She had only minutes, after all. She plucked free a corner of the screen with her knife, tugging at the difficult metal crusted with paint. Once she was convinced that the space was wide enough, she jumped up and squeezed her body through the opening and snaked her way in. Ultimately, she fell flat on the floor. The bruised knee caused her to wince from the fresh pain. One mother's unmistakably cheery voice could be heard. Is that who I think it is? Is that my special Celeste? Celeste's enthusiasm allowed her to spring to her feet. Hello, mother. I am glad I found you well. Wait, what is this? Oh, this? The one mother tenderly traced the wound to her belly, a wound revealed by a knife cut through the fabric of her elegant, patiently sewn dress. This? They've ha they had to make sure I would bleed. They don't just eat anyone. You're coming with me, enjoying the teen and she draped the woman's arm over her shoulder and struggled to lift her to her feet. "'What are you doing, child?' asked the one mother. "'I'm rescuing you, that's what I'm doing,' and Celeste fought with the ungainly weight of the woman. Finally she lost her grip, and the one mother fell back with a bounce upon the plush divan. "'How do you suppose I can exit the ho this house?' queried the elderly lady, her eyes curiously mirthful. "'Exit through this door here?' Enter the square where everyone in the village has gathered? No, there is no means for my escape. But they intend to eat you, clamored the teen, the horror in her voice further unnerving her. It's not so bad, assured the one mother. Here, come to me, my special one. Celeste, tearing up, dropped like a sack of rocks, but welcomed the elderly woman's embrace. You see, young one, this must happen. It must. There was no suffering her ardor. There is no suffering her ardor. I don't understand why you have to feed these people, and lamented the child. The one mother held the child tight, as interlocked together as two gears, their teeth working together. The bond was strong, frightfully unique, stronger than that of mother and daughter, perhaps most like predator and prey. She kissed her on the forehead. You must go, and go right now. They cannot have both of us for dinner. You must go back, and your journey, the journey to find out who you were meant to be, you must embark on. I need the sustenance of the spring. The one mother licked the teen's tears. This journey you must make by yourself. Leave me here, as the next stage of my own journey begins. One that is a journey I, I share with many. As for you, you must be alone for a time, also that you may appreciate the end of this life all the more. There was a terrified look in the elderly woman's face, eye. Celeste pulled back. She wanted to run, but the one mother held her fast. She bit her cheek, 
with her hand cupping the back of the teen's head. The elderly woman brought Celeste's forehead forward. She growled, then breathed something into her ear. Once said, Celeste shot back as if struck hard in the face. She searched the woman's eyes, imploring her to confirm what she had told her was true. She had never known this woman that held her tight, but the one mother would not oblige her and return her gaze. The one mother withdrew as a mist. Whatever she had identified with was gone. She was now afraid of the one mother, but more afraid of herself. I am done with you, child. And Celeste sprang from the lap of the one mother. She returned to the window through which she entered and scampered up and squeezed and broke free. She was angry with and hateful of mother. Maybe she should kill for her herself, but the sadness melted her heart. As her feet cleared the window, she heard the stretching spring and clopping boots announce the entrance of the mayor and an entourage of the faithful. She listened as the mayor spoke frankly. We must break a bone, as you know, most revered. There was no fear in the woman's voice. The same charming voice Celeste remembered that she wanted to remember. I understand. It is as it has been written. You are a brave woman, most revered, testified the mayor. Your meat will nourish nations and peoples, as it must be. Celeste spun around, eyeing the celebrants in the square. She saw the freckled face, tousled black hair, kid, looking in her direction. The boy smiled. The boy winked, then patted the seat adjacent to him. She no longer feared him as much as she hated him for taking the one mother, the calm nurturer, away from her, making the old woman a frightful beast. Celeste turned and ran through the heart of the village, south and west, in the direction of the craggy cliff from which she came. She lunged through the intervening watchful whispering trees, and with tears stinging her eyes, she desperately found footing and scampered up the rock face. Where determined trees succeeded in invading and breaking the stone, Celeste used the intertwining roots to wedge hand or foot and make her way up. She had climbed a couple hundred feet. She knew that much, but she was not afraid. Rather, she was angry and grievous. Maybe it would be best for her to just release her grip and fall back and have her life ended. It took 40 minutes and several stops up the face to rest her weary limbs and suppress her contempt and muster enough courage, but Celeste managed to make her way up the cliff. Once at the top, Zohar saw her and chirped in surprise and joy. He successfully snatched the weary, angry, saddened, beleaguered girl and pulled her toward him. The two sat huddled in silence. How is she? queried the boy, holding the trembling bride, making the effort to comfort her. Is one mother no longer among us? Celeste frowned. Discretion. She was learning what it must be like to live as an adult in the villages of the North Wood. She came to appreciate the value in lying or in saying nothing at all. Tearful but bitter, Celeste said only, The one mother is dead. She suffered, she suffered a stab wound. Don't know how. Could have been herself. Could have been inflicted by one of the villagers. She's dead. That's all I know. Dead. They were digging her a grave in, on the outskirts of the village, from what I could see. Again, the iron bell in the heart of the village rang. The female teen winced. She could only imagine what, she, what that meant. She had mixed feelings about her mother's demise. 
Celeste burrowed her gaze at Zohar's naked feet and muddy pat legs. Come on, prompted Zohar. He made the effort to hug her, but she could not reciprocate. That the one mother is dead does not bode well. The news will be hard to, to take for many of the villages. Who will replace her? As she must be replaced. Hell, the entire world needs that. Slowly they began negotiating the difficult terrain as they descended the foothills, curbing the mountain Machmem. Was that her place? Was Celeste to be the one mother? But she failed. She did not wipe out errant compass. She never could. What was required, really, to be the one mother? Celeste shuddered. Her place was not in Golden Bridal. No, Celeste fa feared she could no longer stay in the Northwood. She could not stay among tyrants and liars and cannibals and murderers. She could not wipe out entire villages. This was no place for a person with a heart. Was that what made her different from the one mother and everybody else among the villagers? She looked at Zohar. She was his bride. Her place was with him to establish a home and a bear a family with him. Celeste's tears shone like bronze in the light of the dying sun. She recalled what the one mother had confided in her as she tried to free her from head in a satchel. What she told her shook her down to her very core. For the one mother had told the teen, there can never be any redemption for you. You must never be the one mother. Celeste looked at Zohar's blade. Maybe she would take her life. It was too late. There was no redemption for her. If she failed her mother, she could, have she could only fail everyone, including Zohar. Zohar's call to her broke her somber mood. Look there. Celeste followed Zohar's finger. To the south could be seen a raging fire. Was another village being destroyed? Had she failed them as well? Celeste could not shake the fact that that was her destination. She assumed the lead. Come on, let's go to them. I can't help but think I must be there. Why, she wondered. There can be no re redemption for her. And the two continued on, down the steep hillside, through the woods, doggedly making their way south and west. That is the end of this is the end of uh, episode three. Um, I hope to have episode four within the next couple of days. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.